Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse, and I'm very excited today to have Naomi Tickle with us. What a great name. She is an expert and an authority in the area of face patterning recognition. The science, imagine this, is about 2,000 years old. The Chinese used a face recognition system to look into a person's life and predict when they would reach their great potential. In fact, in the United States of America in the 1930s in Los Angeles, through watching people through his courtroom, Judge Edward Jones came up with 68 facial features and their characteristics that fall into the realm of 88% accuracy, and this is actually escalated and is much higher now. In 1943, a study was conducted on a freshman class of the U.S. Air Force Academy with 97% accuracy to determine how many men would stay the course, including what type of aircraft the pilots would fly. Naomi Tickle has spoken and given workshops for AT&T, IBM, Morgan Stanley, the National Semiconductor Company, Emory University, New York State College Administration, Macy's, CNN, the World Trade Center, the Commonwealth Club. She has a passion for helping people with their lives. She has an interest in making sure that children have a chance to find their way early in life into their ultimate and best and optimal careers. She is also uh, coming out with a new book on relationships and compatibility. Hopefully by the end of the year, we're very much looking forward to it. And while, as you know, listening to It's Rainmaking Time, for those of you who've been listening, we've covered many types of tools that humanity has used and can use for looking at a person's life and helping them develop themselves from uh, psychics to dowsing to remote viewing, but there are others we haven't covered like palmistry, graphology, astrology. Profiling the human face has a way of giving us a sense of what we are innately born to do. It's a fast track to that. Anybody in human resource departments, anybody thinking of changing their career, people that are silently suffering because they don't like what they're doing every day, people that want to know how to make money in an economic downturn, check into this. Now, other people who are listening are going to say, I don't like profiling. I think profiling is wrong. I think it's inaccurate. I think it always has problems. It's dangerous. I understand that that is how a lot of us think. However, when you're using it to look at what it is that you would be happy and successful doing, it's a fantastic tool. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Naomi Tickle to its rainmaking time. Good morning. Oh, good morning, Kim. Thank you for inviting me to be on the show. It's great to be here. I normally would not get into something like this, but I have to tell you, when I read your book, it was the first time in a long time I felt completely out of place like the history of it was fascinating. The examples you gave in it were fascinating, but there's so much here. And I would imagine for someone like you who's been doing this for so long, it's wrote to you. But it seems very scientific to me, and I don't always see in the pictures what you see, but I guess it's in those 68 facial features and their characteristics that's the telling of everything. Well, yes, that's right. And, you know, when I first came across this system, uh, about 20 years ago, like many and, and probably those who are the listeners on this call, the, uh, I was really skeptical. Uh, I thought, oh, come on, this sounds very Californian-like thing to do, and I wasn't going to fall for this. But um, after 
my curiosity was piqued when I went there based on my friends who were just who'd had their assessment and when talking nonstop about it, I went down and had the assessment and I was blown away for the first time. I felt validated and I've taken tests over time and since that time, nothing compared with this. And so uh, later I did decide to study this. It was, it's an informal program, but it, uh, it took about a year. And then I spent a couple of years testing this out just to see, well, how accurate is this? And to get the feedback from the people, what is it like to have the perfectionist trait or the critical trait? How does that come across? And what was it like growing up with parents with that trait? So many of these traits can be seen at the time of birth such as writing, music, design, someone who's more detailed, the perfectionist, someone who wants the bottom line, and a few others. And then by the time the, the child has passed puberty, all these traits are fully formed. And so I think of the face as the GPS to our inner blueprint. It gives us uh, information about who is this person and why are they so different from, some other, from other people. And so I liken it in a way to if we were to take a journey across the United States in a car uh, without a map, uh, we'd get all sorts of advice on the way. We may even do a U-turn uh, and c- come back to where we started, etc. But if you have a map, it's a reference point, and that's exactly what this acts as. The, the face is like a map, a reference point is... That's right. I've always been interested in writing. Or I love music. Oh, yes, I should go to the theater more often. And it's simply validating what we know about ourselves. Now, sometimes, Kim, what's come up is that, well, isn't this racist? Isn't this talk you're talking about ethnicity or the Jewish nose? And the answer is no. This goes across all cultures. We don't give a different assessment for a different culture. And for some, this may be hard to believe, but we, you know, this is the first time we've had such uh, insights to human behavior and helping to understand people better. So it gives people a tool to work with. And so if someone snaps at you or someone criticizes you or they're looking uncertain and very anxious, you can look for the why. And it helps you to better understand how to work with them. Doesn't this also bring us back to that question of structure versus function? And tell us where you're at with that. From your experience now, is it structure overriding function? What's your take on it? Yeah, it is structure overriding function. Now, if you're living in a negative environment, that can suppress the development of a child or an adult. Once you leave that environment, you come back in touch with who you are. Uh, for example, there are a few traits that do change. The lips can change. And it, when the lips get zipped thin, you can pretty much know these people have gone through tough times. And uh, they, uh, they may have got very angry uh, or hurt. I remember working with this man, uh, and he sent me his photograph, and he had no lips. And I said, what happened to you when you were a child? He said, oh, well, my father passed away and my mother sent me to live with my uncle. And he said, all the way through school, he got, you've got no, from teachers, parents, friends, family, you've got no brains, work with your hands. And so he was never recognized for his talents. And he became very bitter about that. He came, and then he went on to be a very successful person. 
Same with uh, somebody else who was sent to hospital in England at age uh, about two, and his mother didn't see him for a whole week until she picked him up. He just has a throat operation, and he thought she didn't love him anymore, and he became very bitter. And so that's one trait that does change. Uh, does do the lips go back again? They start once they start to relax and they can express their feelings more. Uh, they will start to get a little bit fuller. You also see a thin-lipped person in, say, some of the top sports coaches. Well, there's a lot of tension around those games, and their lips get thinner and thinner. And say, oh my God, what are they doing? What do they think they're doing? And, you know, and so that can make the thin lips. But um, when I see it in a young person. I think see the sadness that's there. Have you ever heard of Paul Ekman? Yes, I have. Do you feel that micro expressions are a kind of lie detector of the human face, or do you feel that it's just a part of the scenario? I think there's some truth in it. People who've read his book and read my latest book, which is What Makes People Tick and Why, they have found that my information was uh, was more useful and more accurate. And it really depends so it, it, upon the, the features of the face. So, um, and what I mean by that, say somebody has very close set eyes, their reaction time and their expression time is going to be much faster than people with wide set eyes and people with the drama trait. And we won't tell who's, who's got that one. I can't imagine can. who that would be. I have quite no, I the adventurous that. life. <laughs> You better say um, something nice about me or this situation is terminated. <laughs> <laughs> so what they'll do is uh, people with a more dramatic trait, they'll they'll put more drama into it. And so their expressions will be much more um, expressive. And I remember that I was on the program Lie to Me, or they asked me to observe and uh, get my feedback. And I couldn't really tell because I'd have to look at all the traits because the, what we see in the face, particularly the eyes, it's the timing of response to something. So it's going to be different if, for one person to another. So yes, important work. Some of it, I think, is definitely is some truth to it. Um, but with the this, which is based on the facial structure, and we have special tools that we measure the eyes. We measure the width of the face, the slope of the forehead, the position of the ears. So it gets it down to a more science, and it, it's there. It doesn't move. It's right there in front of you. What I thought was so neat about this is literally you check everything, cheekbones, jaw, chin, forehead, ears, lips, the focuses on people or information, hair, the hands, the legs, even though I thought the leg part was like an additional thing, unless the legs are now part of the face. <laughs> I was going to say you're creating a new anatomy. I never heard of this. <laughs> but, well, uh, you know, the legs are to do with, um, you know, if you look at people who play soccer, football, and and tennis, most of it, and uh, also volleyball, and of course, weightlifting, most of those people are going to have short to medium legs. And uh, people with short legs have a really hard time sitting still at a desk, and they have to be up and moving around, whereas you find a lot of the long-legged people will be your dancers, people who enjoy playing golf, swimmers, horseback riding. They add more elegance in the dancers. It adds more elegance. Now, when do you see a professional short-legged dancer? You don't. Yeah, I haven't so seen one. <laughs> I call this pattern recognition because we, we meet people, thousands of people over our lifetime. And we get a feeling about someone. I've got an intuition, intuitive feeling. I, I've got a gut feeling about this. I say it's pattern recognition. 
is we start seeing those same features in that place. So if you were to go and look at, uh, say, the baseball players, you see, uh, like where I live in Petaluma, the um, little league team, they were went to the, the um, playoffs. And there was a photograph of them all in the newspaper. And nearly every one of them had closer eyes focused on the ball, cupped out ears, good at controlling the ball. Now, when you see a group of people in the same activity and you see that pattern, you can hardly ignore it. And you know what's interesting, Naomi? I don't know why people wouldn't be interested in this because the face is so telling anyway about what's going on. When I'm in meetings with people, all I do is look at their face. And when I'm on the phone with them, I can tell most of the things I need to know about them through the voice. And I don't even do that for a living. Maybe because of what I do with the show and listening to so many people. You say that you're not intuitive. This is not an intuitive thing. And I get that you want to make sure that this is understood as a science. And you have done double-blind studies. Talk about a double-blind study and what you got out of it. Yeah, well, I did a blind study with career counselors with a number of people. What we did, Kim, was we developed a career program based on the Department of Labor guidelines for um, career assessments. If you look in the Dictionary of Job Titles, it describes qualities needed for a specific career, where you can see those qualities in the face. So what we did is we uh, uh, sent in, this is from photographs, not in person. They sent the photographs to me. I knew nothing about the person. Um, I did the assessment, sent it back, made the career suggestions, and based on the feedback from the career counselors and the subject study, they, um, and they compared this to DIFF, Myers-Briggs, and many of the other tests that people take, and they said this was, in many times, a better match. And certainly for careers, it was a much better match than what they had. And I hear this time and again about uh, people saying, well, I've taken all the tests. They're like, 67% of the students are leaving school. They've taken tests. Now what? They don't know what to do. A lot of them are lost. And I remember working with Stanford University students. Uh, same thing. They were in their master's degree program and weren't quite sure what to do. And they were sent to me. And um, every one of them said, oh, you would have saved me a ton of money if we'd known this earlier. So it just simply validates what we know about ourselves. It, doesn't ju it isn't judging. It's not discriminating. It's saying, yes, you have a gift. Yes, you're, you're the uh, perfectionist. And the perfectionist trait is when the outer corner of the eye is lower than the inner corner, uh, like the Hugh Grant eye or um, even Obama has it in one eye only. Uh, th these people see mistakes that others miss. Now, the gift there is precision. So you often see people in the editing field or construction or engineering anywhere where that that uh, trait is, a, is needed. And it's a benefit. Like when we had someone come in to fix our deck, uh, I thoroughly examined each one of them before I hired them. And uh, when the contractor who got the, um, uh, 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 the appointment, he said, um, I, I gave him my book. And he said, you hired me based on my face? I said, yes. And you should have watched them um, working. It was like everything was so precise. All of his workers had that trait. So there's the gift. But the challenge of that gift, the other side of it, is these people can be very critical. They don't hear themselves criticizing. They think they're helping people. and But their person on the receiving end, he'll, he'll hears it as being critical. Like this one man I work with who um, sent me his photograph, he's about 40, and I immediately saw the outer corner of his eyes, both eyes were lower than the inner corner. So I said, 
what was it like growing up with your parents because we inherit these traits? He said, I don't want to go there. He said, it was too painful. I'm going to a psychologist to help me get through this. And then I noticed that his, the outer edge of his ear was completely rounded. So I knew he had a gift for music. So I emailed back and said, you know, you might want to take up music and join a musical group. Another email comes back from him. He said, well, that's interesting. He said he was at the Los Angeles School of Music that got so criticized, he couldn't take it anymore, and he dropped out. And I said to him, you know, you have a gift. Get back and take up your music again. And he did just that. So what we're doing is we're helping people find a career, an activity that they are passionate about. But that it's innate, isn't it, as well? It's an innate thing, really. It's already in their template of being. It's already in there. You're already wired. And so what we're doing is we're connecting with what we see in the face with activities that these people enjoy. And at the same time, looking at, say, okay, here are some issues that could come up in relationships, but you do have choice. Choice supersedes structure. As one man said who took my workshop, he said, I heard myself criticizing my wife the next day, and he said, I apologize right away. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. I want you to consider that the water we drink is crucial to our health and well-being. I also want you to consider that chronic dehydration is the precursor to a disease state. The work of Dr. Batman Jellich demonstrates this. Many of us are trying to find alkalized water to drink, thinking that's going to be the answer to impacting our health and well-being. Most of us don't know that if we cannot get our body hydrated, we cannot achieve continuous alkalinity, which is a promoter of health and well-being. The physics of water is totally distinct from the chemistry of water. And until you understand what that means to health and wellness, you can be lost in trying to understand what is good healthy water to drink. Dr. Jacques Benveniste was right when he said that water has memory and is alive. And Dan Nelson is right when he says there's a distinction between irrigating the body and hydrating it. And most of us attempt to hydrate it by drinking more water. Cells cannot assimilate most of the water that we drink, so our cells are dehydrated all the time. Learn the science about this by going to the Positron Group and consider purchasing Wayback Water, the fast track to hydration by Dan Nelson, who's a physicist, an educator, and a man who's committed that we have healthy, remarkable drinking water. Go to waybackwater.com or call Nancy Ainsley at 870-741-5877. And back to the show. One of the challenges of bringing in a system like this is that like any tool in any system, when people get excited about it and they start using it, they start turning it into the way. They miss a lot of opportunities with people. I know people that wouldn't talk to other people unless they fit their astrological matrix. Some of the great systems and tools have been improperly navigated and utilized It's a powerful tool to optimize a person's existence, but I think it's the navigation of which that makes it a good thing or something that keeps people from experiences with other people. Do you agree with me? Yes, and you know, on the other hand, there are people who jump and think, oh, I know what this means, and then use it in 
you know, in a way that's not supposed to be meant to be used. I mean, this is really the purpose of this and why I enjoy the work that I do is to help people better understand each other. So instead of reacting, we can come from understanding. I remember being, I was lecturing on a cruise ship and it was the last day and we're all in line to pick up our bills. And this man behind me was just really giving the crew a hard time. And I looked around, uh, uh, looked behind me and I thought, oh yeah, he's got these very close eyes. So sometimes people with close eyes get overly anxious and overly react. And so I said, look, I realize this is frustrating for you, but we're all on the same line. We just need to take it as we go. And, you know, we will get through this. He calmed down. And so what I did is I addressed uh, the why, looked at him and I said, oh, okay, this is what's going on. I didn't prejudge it. I just looked to, to check and then able to deal with him better. And just like that with any any situation. I remember taking my granddaughter to um, a playground and, oh, she was so anxious and so terrified. I said, come on, let's do this together. Let's walk up here because I knew why. I knew what was happening. I was able to work her through that. And within a very short period of time, oh, she was off running around everywhere. I guess because of the number of people I've spoken with in different areas like remote viewing and dowsing and astrology and other modalities, I feel like there's a distinction between a tool like this showing a pattern of tendencies or gravitational pull versus this is the way somebody is. You said something about, you know, I'm the drama person or whatever. For example, somebody hearing that, right, from an authority like you could now perceive me as a drama person expected in their communications and their dealings with me and projected into the scenario. That's how insidious the misuse of this could be. Do you agree with me? It could, but it also means it's the artist, uh, the love of being on stage, the love of the theater. And so... Say that wasn't something that you had been exposed to or even had the opportunity. And the onstage can be from teaching. It can be from sports. Let's look at kids. If kids have this trait, and for the listeners to know what is the drama, it's when the eyebrows flare upwards, which you'll see in a lot of your movies, uh, female movie stars and male, and also in um, the modeling uh, field. Uh, but say here's a child in school, and I have to admit, I have a little bit of this trait. Uh, you know, if I couldn't get the attention, I would do things to get the attention. And I look back in horror now thinking, oh my gosh, I did that. And I'd always wanted to be on stage, but my father wouldn't hear of it. He was an opera singer. And, uh, wow, I didn't know anyway, that. Anyway, <laughs> what happens where we can use this in, in a positive sense, we say, okay, this, this child needs some attention, he needs a stage, so let's beat them to it. Let's put them involved in the sports and sign them up for a um, acting class or, or, or performing something with music or anything that sets them on stage, and then it doesn't become an issue. I totally get that. In fact, I was at a finance conference a few weeks ago, and I sat in the front row because I really, really pay attention. It's just something I do as a student. And yeah. I ended up asking so many questions to the people sitting in the seats in the front of the room that I really, not even knowing it, ended up facilitating a lot of things just from my seat and found myself in love 
with being in the public in a physical way, because of what I do here, it doesn't really bring the passion in me the way speaking in front of others does. It doesn't give me the same charge. In other words, I'm looking into a microphone. But when I did television, I totally came alive because it was a more personal interface. But when I stand before an audience, oh my God, I mean, I'm in full bloom. You can even know something that's so deep about a person coming into their life. I have a love relationship with audiences. I'm totally in love with them. And you can tell that when I stand before an audience. So I think something like this is very, very important, particularly when so many people have lost their way and are doing what they're told to do. I was a tournament tennis player for 13 years. Even though I was an attack style player, I was a servant volleyer at a national and state ranking, and I was really a good player. But what did I love? Entertaining the audience. The in-between talking when we would cross over the side or if we had a wild, incredible point is communicating with the audience. And that was a whole other part that had to die when I was in that field. And when I left that field, that part of me could bloom. I'm just giving you an example of, you know, what you could read in a face. It's all there. It's really- it is all there. And, uh, you know, we see the gifts. Like I remember seeing this uh, young child and uh, had the the writing trait. It's a, it's a little line that's etched in and you can see that at the day of birth. And uh, I said to the mother, I said, uh, oh, this is what I do. And, you know, I, I want to enc- I'd like to encourage you for your daughter to, uh, you know, take up writing. And she said, oh, well, I write for the newspaper. And so she'd inherited her mother's traits. So we can look at our our parents, our grandparents, our great-grandparents, and we'll see those traits all the way back um, through. And like um, another trait that's out there, when people have the more exposed eyelids, say like Hillary Clinton, her eyelids are more exposed, uh, Vladimir Putin, and many of your volleyball players, if anyone watched the Olympic Games, a lot of the volleyball players um, had and gymna- gymnasts, they all had exposed eyelids. Come on, let's go, let's do it now. They're very action-driven. And so what happens when people go on and on, these individuals will, um, with the exposed eyelid, will cut people off and say, I know you're going, just tell me. Just do it now. Don't waste my time. Whereas when the eyelid is more covered, uh, like Bill Clinton's eyelids are more covered, uh, these are your analytical people. They ask question after question after question, and which is driving the... Um, Low analytical, as we got, they're not really low analytical, but the more exposed <laughs> eyelids driving them nuts. It's like, come on, <laughs> I don't want to hear it all. <laughs> I've got it. Let's move on it. So the way we work with that, and I say to the people who have the exposed eyelids, well, you need to be patient with these other people or just say to them, look, I've just got a couple of minutes. Can we go with the most important questions first? Or vice versa, look, I have a lot of questions to cover. We need these to be answers. So just bear with me. Now, you talk about the fact that face pattern recognition can also assist the entertainment industry with casting theater, films, advertisements. How do you mean that? Explain it to us. Well, when you're playing a certain character, say you're uh, playing a more intense character and the person you've cast is, has got wide set eyes and a wider face and uh, more laid back. Well, it, they can't... They, it doesn't come over if you try to put them in, a, in somebody who's more intense and go get it. It's not going to come over that way. You had to almost make it in your own mind come that way. But if you use the features as a guide for in, um, 
for enhancing that personality, for making it even more authentic, then the whole character comes alive. Don't you think that casting agents are subconsciously doing this without knowing the science? In some ways, but I do, I do often see people uh, cast in roles that it doesn't come over as being convincing. Interesting. I think, in general, the casting people have very little knowledge of this area. They, they have a, a feeling of it, uh, but I see too many times, in whether it's in films or in um, productions, live productions, it doesn't quite come across. I Just this last weekend, I went to see La Caja Fo uh, locally, and the casting was, it couldn't have been better. Now, whether they knew what they were doing, I don't know. That's what I meant by a subconsciously on some level. They're, yeah. they're looking for it, but they don't know what the it is. They just are doing it. Yeah. You have said you're not using intuition. And I do understand that it's a science, but I don't think you can help yourself with that. I think it's there anyway, whether you like it or not. <laughs> I, I have to disagree with you. Okay. I, I, I don't think intuition is reliable. And I like to use a... a, a like the, like the the uh, face pattern recognition is it's a more of a science and I like it because you know that if you teach when I teach this to somebody they're going to have exactly the same results because I work have students from all over the world and my book sells inst- inst- interestingly it sells mostly in Saudi Arabia. Are you serious? Yes. Why do you think that is? I don't know. I think you should start looking at some Saudi Arabian people and find out. Big in Saudi Arabia, how interesting. But if a woman is wearing a chador, I wonder how we can tell. Well, you've got their eyes. That's about it. Yeah, but the eyes tell an awful lot about it. That is true. They give it all. Yeah, when you think, I remember giving a a talk at at an orthodontist conference, and I had 200 beady eyes looking at me, all these close-set eyes, good with detail, very reassuring. But it felt very strange to see this all these uh, very close-set eyes. So, you know, the eyes tell you a lot about a person. They tell you if they're analytical or the bottom line, which is the exposed eyelid, if they're perfectionist, which is when the outer corner of the eye is lower than the inner corner. And also if um, they have, uh, what we do is we draw a line down the center of the nose and look to see if the corner of the eye is closer to the center nose on one side than the other. And when there's a lot of asymmetry in the face, you can pretty much know that the parents of that person were very different from each other. And that's what creates the asymmetry. And so when there's extreme asymmetry, this will indicate possible mood changes. It's the push and pull of the traits. And they get labeled ADD or um, bipolar. And it's not that. It's just push and pull of traits. I've worked with manic depressives. And the most differences I've ever measured was 23 differences from left to right side of the face. And when I explained what was going on, they were able to cope with it better. See, I think the eyes can tell you receptivity, flexibility, depth, availability, so many things. So but, many things, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's the first thing we look at, it's the eyes. When you, and then you've got those magnetic, sparkling eyes that are so flirtatious. And you put the drama eyebrows, uh, I think we have to label you with those sparkling eyes. And, and it just, it creates people to come to you. I'm flattered. <laughs> you better not put a bag over my head or we're going to be in a big fight. <laughs> <laughs> Flattery will get you everywhere. Naomi, I have another question for you. I want to go back to the intuition comment that you made. I totally get what you said. 
This is about calling upon a scientific capability and faculty that's repeatable, that's consistent over and over and over, and I get that. However, when you said that intuition is unreliable, what's the context of that comment? Intuition is unreliable from your point of view in what? In everything or just in this area? Well, in this particular area, I mean, yes, one gets a gut feeling about things, and it's—I I wouldn't say you shouldn't, one shouldn't pay attention to it. But in this specific area, where we need it, needs to be consistent and reliable. This is where intuition doesn't play a part of it, because we've got these tools that do measure the width of the face, slope of the forehead, the position of the ears, who measure the eyes. And so none of that is intuitive. I mean, this has been researched on initially over 10,000 people and then narrowed it down. And then they, then it was again researched again from the 1950s to the 70s on another 1,000 people and just to you know, check the validity of all this. So when you bring that in, that's not intuition. That is more of a science. And you start to look at the degree of the trait. So there are degrees from... You know, uh, from uh, uh, say uh, the, the going back to the eyes, uh, the close set, slightly wider set than extremely wide set. There are degrees of each of these traits, and as I mentioned, it is a lot of asymmetry. You will see one side is different from the other, and that's why we need these tools to measure it. And what I think is, it organizes what we see, we, and we other people call it intuition. I think it's just simply organizing what we see. It's a tool that brings the the dots together. It reminds me of using a precision tool, something that optimizes what you're really seeing. Your level of it to me is microscopic. All of this is available and you've made it available to the public. But even when I went through the book and I consider myself a decent study, right? I was overwhelmed at all the different features and characteristics and everything. Now, maybe the first read, that's the way it is. But now do you teach protégés? How do you work as an instrument of this? Well, I, I offer workshops. Uh, I, I offer correspondence courses and, and advanced courses. The correspondence course goes through all of the, the 91 different traits. And then the advanced course, it's a hands-on how to measure and how to enter the charts, uh, the traits onto a uh, chart that's specifically designed for this. And it, what it, the chart does, it records where you are on the percentile ranking. And uh, yeah, I just put the book out there because I thought it's about time this be- uh, was in the public domain because otherwise it's, no one's going to know about it. And this is the first time it's been published. So much of it has been published. And it doesn't make one an expert at the field. It just introduces the subject. And what I say to people is study one trait at a time. Test it out. Oh, do you see mistakes that other people miss? Oh, yeah, how do you know that? Oh, well, uh, you know, et cetera, and, and so forth. Or you know, do you hate charging for things? And that's people with ski jump noses like the Bob Hope nose. These people give away things. They have a hard time uh, charging the full price. Whereas when you have um, a more aquiline nose, and these individuals are more about value. How much does it cost? Is it worth it? Can I get, for, get it for less? And I'm not talking about a Jewish nose. I'm talking about the bone on the nose and how protruding it is or how, uh, you know, the Roman-shaped nose. And they're very much the boss. They want to be in charge of things. 
but they are very cost conscious as well. And you see this in a lot of your top business people because they, you know, they're looking at the value of something. That's their interest is making money. And when I did all of the charts for the 40 of the top successful business people, they all had that trait. You know, when you see a group of people in the same uh, profession or same have the same interests, you can't ignore the pattern that's there. I think you're right about that. Did you study much of the Chinese translation of this, or did you just find out about its historical context? No, I didn't. Uh, I didn't study Chinese. I I don't know that I find that to be reliable, accurate. I I don't introduce. If I were to bring in another trait, I'd have to personally research this on at least. Uh, a few hundred people until I was convinced that, yes, this does work. And I have, uh, you know, there's a lot of people out there doing face reading, but I think it's more of an entertainment. Um, I'm sure they feel very, um, uh, you know, they're very professional in what they do, uh, but I don't see the validity or the research behind it. And this is why, you know, all these men from engineers, statisticians, psychologists, salespeople, they did all the research behind this. So it wasn't just uh, something that's observed and then written about. It, they did the research first and then launched it. And so this is what separates us from other approaches of reading faces. There was this very funny YouTube video of this Chinese man talking about how Fan Li, who was the political advisor to King Go Jin, helped him win many wars. And when the king took over the Wu kingdom the advisor saw in his face that he could share trouble with the king, but not happiness. And his predictions apparently came true. Now, I don't know if this is a fact or a truth that he could tell right away, but I thought that was kind of interesting, even if that was entertainment. (laughs) And even if it's false, it's something that gives us a glimpse that thousands of years ago, there was some type of pattern recognition about the face that was not honed. And it certainly wasn't translated and transmitted the way Judge Edward Jones did. Did you ever get a chance to meet direct protégés of Edward Jones? Well, I met Robert Whiteside many years ago, and he was a very genuine man and had had, had some success and had published a book. Um, but there's very hardly anyone, unfortunately, uh, continuing this work today. And I'm probably the most, not probably, I know, I'm the most active person in this field. And uh it's it is hard to sometimes convince people that this isn't as i say some kind of ethnicity or judging and uh but now uh, what i have is a group of men who are um supporting what i do and uh, they've been amazing it's the way they present it to the corporate world um it's been very effective and now people are starting to open up uh, over here in the states in europe they're, they're a lot more open uh i found uh, because that's where I, in a sense, when I had my first launching of many of the television and uh, radio shows over there and the magazines and newspapers. Uh, but I find now that um, it's, the way it's been presented, uh, uh, people are being more and more open. And I think, uh, you know, as I say, if people just practice, just observe, just observe the patterns and it becomes fascinating. Faces will never look the same again. You'll find yourself in a post office or in the bank or a grocery store, and 
you'll see the patterns and it, it you know it becomes intriguing and sometimes when i go into a store and i see someone with an incredible talent i feel compelled to go up and say you ever thought about doing some photography like this man who was walking around the school yard and he was uh, a janitor and I thought oh he's so brilliant I wonder why he's a janitor well he'd been labeled as having learning disabilities and I said you know you might want to take up photography and he said oh I love photography I go out and do these lighthouses and so on and so forth and he showed my husband um, all of his photographs and now we have this great conversation and I said, come on, we've got to get you back on that photography again. And uh, anyway, it's, so, it's, it's used in a very positive form. It's not negative. Sales and marketing, no matter what you're doing, all of us find out that we have to participate in some aspect of sales and marketing. Yes. And therefore, you've got to have some critical insights into the face and who's appropriate for sales and marketing positions. Absolutely. And some of the traits you can't actually see because it takes, in, see in a sense for, a, for a, 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 someone who hasn't got any training. And what we're finding, what I found when I was working at IBM, I gave a workshop to IBM marketing division. Uh, they were all highly competitive. The head is much wider at the back than the front. This is easier to see on men than women. But if you look at a lot of your top sports people, they all have wider, wider heads at the back compared to the front. And they're naturally competitive, so you need that quality in sales. Uh, it does help if someone has um, a, a rounded forehead. They're very people-driven. They love to work with people. And uh, they'll follow through. And there are some certain traits that are definitely where people will benefit. Like you often hear of these multi-level marketing uh, companies. They have such high turnover. Well, people go in to buy hope but they don't have the traits or the natural, um, I say, ability. I don't, I don't really don't want to say ability, but the natural inclination to be competitive. They do it for the love of it. But if you're not competitive, um, you know, you, you can't. It, 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 it's much harder to, to work with. Like if you take a cart horse and a racehorse and you put the cart horse in the same race as the racehorse, you know who's going to win. Now you can train that cart horse and to to compete with a racehorse, but it's out of its comfort zone. And uh, they fall back after a way, you know, because it can't cope. And that's what people do in, in the workforce. They, they, they get in a job. It's just a job. And uh, they may not excel at it, but it, it pays a... It's like this one man who uh, lived in a coal mining area. He uh, uh, wanted to get into a contest, a writing contest, when he was about 12, and his family said, well, who do you think you are? She said, you're not one of them. And implicating class system over there in a way. And yet he'd always had this passion for writing and, and doing other things. And when he left school at 15, had a job as a janitor. And uh, he said to his fellow co-workers, he uh, complained. He said, Jeff, it's your, it's your lot in life. Be happy. You get a you get a paycheck at the end of each week. But he thought, you know, that's not me. And he went on in the end to um, uh, eventually start up. He never get, never lost belief in himself. He started up one of the top martial arts schools, and he's also written forty books. Fantastic. And he now why was he able to do this? When you hear of other people 
have everything and yet don't. Well, he had the competitive drive and he believed in himself. And that's what makes the difference. It doesn't have to have a competitive drive to be successful, but it's the belief that I can do it. And those are the people who come out of nowhere and do something with their lives. Very interesting. How was your experience doing this type of work with Sharon Osborne? Oh, it was great fun. It was great fun, and she's an incredible person. Children had a wonderful rapport with her, but I remember being on the show with her um, in Los Angeles, and uh, not her show, but we were on the same show together. And I remember saying to Sharon, um, how much uh, cosmetic surgery have you had done? She said, oh, everything from the nose downwards. <laughs> now, you know, cosmetic surgery is not going to change anything. You still are who you are. But, uh, you know, she, we were just we were there actually talking about Ozzy, and he certainly has a very long philtrum, which is a dry sense of humor. Not everybody's going to get his jokes. And, you know, it's interesting in talking about couples, you know, the more similar couples are uh, in the, the, the features of the face, there are going to be some differences, obviously, but the, the greater the compatibility. And that's what we're doing with the dating side. We're creating this compatibility. Uh, with people, and so finding a soulmate, uh, hopefully that will work for them. Very, very interesting. Can you say more about Sharon Osbourne, or is it private, about your evaluation of her face? I haven't got her photograph in front of me, and I you know, I, I see so many thousands of... Funny, I saw her on the, on the um, front of a magazine yesterday, but uh, I know that she's got a narrow face, and so she builds her confidence through knowledge, and once people with narrow faces have the confidence, uh, you know, have the information... They're extremely confident. And I think she's got fairly close to eyes. Not too close, but I think she's tolerant to a certain degree. But um, (laughs) She's got one heck of a sense of humor, that's for sure. She does. She absolutely does. And very quick to think. And her humor is very quick. She can think on her feet. And, um, yeah, I, I, I haven't got a photograph in front of me. No worries. I want to talk about the importance of being able to detect optimism and pessimism through the lips. Aside from the obvious, which is the lips have these micro-expressions, how are you looking at the lips structurally to indicate that? Well, uh, when the outer corner of the lip turns downwards, these are your pessimists. And what I often find, there's a correlation between the people who are critical, so constantly looking at what doesn't work. And as they do that, their mouth turns down. It's like, "Mm, it probably won't work, Mm." No, that's not very good. No, no, what do they think they're doing? You know, and they, they do it as habit, you know, day after day after day. And it's very hard to live with these people because they look at the, at the downside of life. And uh, they have to learn to look upwards into, you know, it, because it, it's reflecting their inner mind, what's going on in their mind. is There's a lot of negative inner chatter going on. And uh, so I notice a lot of that with the, the criti- people who have the critical trait because... Nothing's ever good enough. I'm never good enough, you know, a type conversation. And so the way to overcome that is to say, okay, turn off that switch and let that go. And look at the positive side. Look what we can do to to change things instead of looking at what isn't happening. Look at what we can do. Optimism is when the lips turn upwards. It reminds me a part of what you're doing, like when I would video myself playing tennis and then evaluate the lesson. The face is your video, if you will, to show a customer this is what's there in real time. This is it. And 
I like that the science uses the body as the indicator because we can all see that. What about the pioneering trends? I, I thought it was so interesting that the pioneering trends have something to do with the ears. Talk about that. Yeah, well, when there's a flat edge on the outside rim of the ear, when it's, it's really flat and you can feel it with your finger, uh, these people don't do as well working for other people. They, they work better for themselves. They like to pioneer new things, new ideas, new concepts, and constantly on the leading edge. Uh, I I happen to have that trait, and my son blames me because he's got it too. He says it's my fault. <laughs> he finds it difficult to work for other people. He does work for himself, but he blames it on me. Is he involved um, in the same work you are? No, no, no. He's a DJ, but um, all of my family were were pioneers, and uh, they, um, you know, it's not surprising we inherited the trait. We didn't work for other people; we worked for ourselves. Interesting. And, uh, that, and it, you know, it's not a guarantee that's going to be the best thing or that we're going to be successful. It just says that's our preference. And I've heard people say, oh, yeah, I couldn't work for anybody um, who have this trait. And, and others are more flexible without that trait. I heard you say in one of the interviews that most people's careers change today about seven to ten times and that around 80 percent of the people are in careers that are not right for them. Isn't that frightening? But it's sad. You know, I remember uh, I did this woman's chart. She was 75. And uh, she sent her photograph to me. And I said, well, you should have, uh, I would suggest, well, what came up was either teaching or psychology. And she said, well, that's interesting. She said, because when she left school, that's exactly what she wanted to do. She wanted to be a psychologist. And her parents said, what do you want to do that for? You want to listen to people's problems all day. Okay, well, then I want to be a teacher. I wouldn't do that for. You don't get paid much. So she started up her own business, but she said, you know, it was never really satisfying. And she said, you've just confirmed why. And so we, we, we get a job. It pays the bills. And uh, it gives us some extra sometimes to go off and do other things. But is it what, you know, we live one life. Why not do the things we love to do as long as, of course, it, it, it covers the costs and uh, our expenses and then a little bit over? Uh, but it, it, it's, life is too short. I mean, uh, it's like connecting people with what their passion is and saying, even if it's just a sport or, or taking up um, model airplane flying or doing needlework or collecting stamps or whatever it might be, you know, as long as it's within the budget, I say go out there and explore it because it will give people so much satisfaction. We are designed, and there's a, uh, what I want to say is it, there's a resonance, what we feel when we're doing things that we enjoy. It brings us happiness in our life. And, yes, other things come at us to, uh, to um, take us off track and uh, to create stress. That does happen in reality. But even if it's just taking a walk for people who love to, short-legged people, just get out there and walk. Uh, we need to walk more here in the United States. They don't walk enough. And whether it's by the water or in the woods or whatever it is you enjoy, it brings balance to your life. And that is the difference that, you know, when we're on track and doing the things we love to do, uh, I think people will be a lot happier. I know that you're available for speaking to corporate groups. Are you available for speaking to any other type of groups? Oh, yes. Yes, I speak to all sorts of different groups. Like parties. There's going to be a lot of holiday parties in November and December. 
Do you do any other type of meetings, like conferences? I speak at conferences, uh, you know, from kinesiology to NAPO, and um, I've spoken at uh, various uh, uh, college conferences. And it's just a wide range because, you know, we're working with people every day, meeting and meeting with them, and it just it gives people another tool, another set of information. Plus, this is something different. It's not the same old thing that uh, they generally have at these conferences. It's refreshing. And my talks are very interactive. I involve the audience. And this is what they like about it. I get them up on stage. Like I was the um, opening keynote speaker for Dr. Oz um, in the Bay Area just a few months ago. And it was wonderful. It was... Uh, I had a, I had a following all day. I couldn't even get out <laughs> to my car without people following me. They oh, read my face, read my face. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, you know, it it has such a wide application. And schools uh, teachers are overloaded right now. But this would be ideal for for teachers uh, coaching. No matter what the organization is, everybody can use this. Everyone throughout the world. How much does it cost to get a reading for people listening? Well, for a photo profile, it's $150, and this includes a call on Skype, if you have Skype. It also includes a personalized CD, a chart, a printout of the strengths and challenges, and also career suggestions. If there's any follow-up calls, it includes that as well. How awesome. Very, very, very affordable for most people. Yes, I tried to make it that way. I got a slightly ski-jump nose, which isn't about money. It's how can I help you? I think that's awesome. Is there a phone number that we can give out for you for people to contact you? Yes, you can reach me at 707-769-0290, or you can better still contact me by email, which is my name, Naomi Tickle, without the E on the end of tickle at AOL.com. Okay, but if they go to your website, there is an E on the end, correct? Yes, there is. Okay. There is an E on the end of tickle. <laughs> wow, that's a trickster. <laughs> yeah and uh, my books are there what makes people tick and, and why that's for sale and my other uh, book is there and some um and also some uh closing the sale a uh, booklet later on uh, hopefully by the end of this month we'll have the uh ebook on relationships so we'll be up on the website as well fantastic we have been listening to, talking with, and learning from Naomi Tickle, the author of What Makes People Tick and Why. The answers are in the face. Contact her by either calling her or going to NaomiTickle.com, N-A-O-M-I-T-I-C-K-L-E.com. And I am tickled to find out that the artistry in me is ready for the stage. <laughs> it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kim. It's rainmaking time.